This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. You're listening to the full episode of Urban Ecologies with John Thackeray. Hello and greetings. This week, we're talking about cities and nature. As always, I'll be adding a life world slant to the conversation, focusing on how those who dwell in urban settings can engage with the teeming and vivid animal world right on their doorsteps. I felt that we needed to have an episode about cities here on the show because it's been estimated that by 2050, over two-thirds of the world's population will be living in urban areas. That statistic, for me, foretells a hungry escalation of urban spread. And, the way I see it, we can either choose to integrate more nature into these mega-agglomerations, or we can start to say goodbye to generations of little humans who have had any contact with something other than the human species. That's to say, anything that is not human-made, synthetic, addictively technologized, or hyper-controlled. How do you think that anyone's imagination can roam wild and roam free and entangle with other intelligences if only high-rises and concrete rivers are in sight, if the world is increasingly digitized and screen-captured? And the sad part of this is that this nature deprivation systematically affects lower-income families, creating a damaging feedback loop that hits hardest at those who are already struggling to keep pace. And yet, cities are also beautiful. Cities are these wonderfully complex organisms, and they are also social incubators that provide dazzling connectivity and innovation due to the alchemic bumping up of so many human molecules. And so we must ask ourselves the questions, can cities be the best of both worlds? Can they provide both high social connectivity amongst human beings and amongst non-human beings? Can we design cities from the perspective and the life worlds of other species? And by the way, where does the city even begin? How can animals disrupt our associations of what cities are? Now, I am delighted to introduce us to John Thakra, a writer, curator, and professor who develops design agendas for ecological restoration, urban-rural reconnection, and multi-species environments. John curated the celebrated Doors of Perception Conference for 20 years and was commissioner of the UK Social Innovation Biennale and the Urban Rural Expo in Shanghai. Speaking to us from rural France, here's John. Welcome to Life Worlds. Today, we're going to be speaking about a bunch of different things. I'm very excited to get into, especially what you're up to in terms of urban-rural connection and bioregionalism and place-based learning. Before we launch into all of that, just wanted to establish for those people who don't know you, you've been at this intersection of design and nature, this arc for decades. And 
it's been a long conversation. I'm sure that every generation has had their own ways of speaking about it and designing for ecologies and nature and cities and so on and so forth. How have you seen that conversation change over time, design and nature? And how have we advanced in how we design for nature today? Where do we find ourselves at this current moment in that trajectory? It's a great question, Alexa, because I'm very conscious of being possibly a sort of second or maybe third generation in this discourse, in the sense that people in the 1960s and 70s were very active in looking at the disjoint between modern life and nature, but they felt that they were continuing a discussion which began in the 19th century, when during the second half of the 19th century, in particular, people were very aware of everything from railroads to telegraphs to electricity, separating people from the natural world. So it's a curious cyclical thing. We come and go, and I'm kind of confident that we've learned the lessons of the previous generation, but I must say that I'm conscious myself of having been distracted by technology and internet aspects of design for the first half of my career, really. And it's only in the last 20 years that I've just been reminded that the fundamental kind of reality that we all have to kind of reconnect with is nature of which we are a part. And the design world has been on a kind of a deviation from that. But I think it's pretty startling to me how quickly we are now reconnecting. And so I was a kind of, as I said, second generation in the 20th century. But now in the last five years, there's so many different strands emerging like tentacles from the undergrowth of design, as well as from the environmental movement and other forms of science. So lots of tentacles happening at the same time. That's a greatly inspirational message. What do you mean when you say that we've been distracted by technology and the internet, and even yourself included? I've always been aware of something called a sustainability crisis or the need for sustainability that we don't have since I was pretty young. But it was only, I guess, in the uh, when it's sort of 1990s that I first met proper serious environmentalists who alerted me to how really serious the situation was. So until that point, I was you know, immersed in the normal debates about design and architecture and cities, but the role of nature in providing a way out of our problems wasn't clear to me. And then I met a man from the Club of Rome who told me about the studies they'd done, you know, 30 years earlier in the early 60s and 70s about the you know, limits to growth. And that was the first time I'd had a proper scientist telling me about how grave their kind of projections were. And at the same time, I started to meet environmental activists and professional ecologists who said, yes, when you're out there in the world, it is really as bad as the reports say. But I must say that it was halfway through my career. And I was just struck by how shocking it was to be told how grave the situation was and how little awareness I had of it. And so basically, at the beginning of the 90s, I was organizing an internet conference called Doors of Perception in Amsterdam. And we were very, very thrilled and excited by the internet and all that it promised. But the whole notion of what this meant for the environment only really came into our world, well, I put it there, you know, after a couple of years when we had this discussion about, well, the internet's very interesting, but what is its purpose? What's it for? And that's when I started to have this conversation with environmentalists say, we need to radically reduce the material and energy impacts of industrial society on the world. And we can do that by making people get much closer to the things that they use and consume. And maybe the internet can help us do that. 
So this was just early 90s. And then I met philosophers and writers and people with deeper understanding who said this kind of ecological gap between modern life or internet life as it was becoming there and the natural world, this metabolic rift, is at the heart of all the problems that we have. Because if we really were aware of the damage we were doing to life on Earth and all its different manifestations, we wouldn't do it. We're not like all psychopaths, but we're just physically and cognitively separated. So that's when I began to see the design opportunity as maybe design could be part of making that reconnection that technology and modern life had made. And so it sounds like you operate under a thesis, which I think is one that I share. This metabolic rift, it sounds like it's as much physical as psychological and that distancing from the natural living world, which I think everyone who's listening would kind of get a sense of what that is. That metabolic rift, that distance, the ecological gap means that when we try and design anything really in, in the human world, because we don't have that grounding in what quote unquote nature is, and I think we should talk about that, we may not be designing to the best of our capabilities or understandings because of that distance. Is that correct? Well, this notion of it being an experience thing and not just an intellectual thing is pretty crucial to what I've learned over the last 20 years. Because after that period, when I was rather shocked to discover, so to speak, intellectually, because a scientist was telling me about how bad things were, I then thought, well, okay, we should tell all the designers about how bad things are, and they will be as shocked as I was, and they'll do something about it, to slightly oversimplify. But I spent, you know, years giving lectures in various different degrees of frustration or urgency or passion about how we have to stop trashing the planet because it's our only home, and to be just mystified by the fact that people either turned off or said, yes, that sounds awful, and then they carried on with their lives. And I discovered after rather being a slow learner that just telling people things is not enough. Frankly, that's a kind of problem the whole environmental movement has had of, you know, publishing reports, arguments, slideshows, films, all sorts of media about the problem. But those things are all basically representations of the thing itself. And it's only in the last, I guess, 10 years that I started to learn from properly wise people that until you experience the nature or you experience connection with it or even experience the lack of connection, this notion of embodied understanding, that was the point at which for the first time I realized that just saying things was not going to be enough. So that's why my work and a lot of people nowadays is how do you enable people in media-saturated world to have embodied living relationships with nature that, I think, is the one thing that can unlock this kind of impasse that we've been in for so long. How do you do that? How do you bring people into that embodied relationship? And as you know, just as a preface, you organize workshops all around the world and summer schools. And maybe you can speak a little bit to how you try to bring people into that embodied connection and the kinds of activities and engagements and things that they're participating in. I basically did a journey. I organized a big conference in a gigantic convention center in Amsterdam for most of the 1990s. And it was very cool and incredibly groovy and hip. But at the end of the day, we were sitting in a darkened room, impressing each other with our stories and our images and our sound. But then people would go back and it was kind of like going it was an out of daily life activity. And the more and more the, quote, environmental agenda became the focus of our discussions, the less appropriate it seemed that we were having these discussions in a large man-made building in 
artificial light and bad air. And then we started to do our conference and meetings in India for the last five years, up until the early the noughties. And that was where just the act of being in a different culture, but also being in a less technologically intense environment, the experiences became much more moving and transformational for people, including for me, just being out of normal media-saturated cities. Just to give a practical example, we had our first two or three meetings in India in these big round structures with a bamboo roof and no walls of the kind that they would use for weddings. So our, our meeting place was in a building with no walls. And our basic practice of those, those of perception experiences was to go around our environment, different parts of India with local people, look at everything from farmers to people cooking lunch for 10,000 people in Alanga or whatever, incredible variety of experiences, come back to our building with no walls and to tell each other about it in amazed voices. And the more we did that, the less important it became to have an agenda before we arrived. The less important was it to have famous speakers giving fancy speeches. And the more we learned that being together in a place was what we needed just to get a different understanding of the situation. And it's not a magical ingredient. The more it goes on, in fact, the more I call myself a curator and a program director of a conference, the less curating and the less directing you do, the often the better it can be if people are just given the opportunity to absorb the qualities of a place, connect with each other in a natural way, have time to reflect on things and not be told to come up with results. It's all about removing pressures and directions from the situation. That's what I think is needed. And how one does that for larger numbers of people who are desperate, I think, in many different ways to reconnect with the living world, but either don't know how to do it or they feel absolutely trapped by their commitments in urban situations, families, children, jobs, or whatever. It's just not enough for people like me to say, you should all get out into nature and reconnect with nature because there's a thousand and one practical obstacles to that. So the, the point I've reached now is that we need to look at the many thousands of people who are actually doing it anyway, from teachers to farmers to ecologists to tour guides, find those people all over the world and help them to do it better and help them to do it more. So that's kind of my mission at the moment, is to amplify and make accessible many of the things that are already happening, and then look very seriously at what needs to be done to make it possible for a busy person with two jobs in a city with children, how can that person have this experience as well as somebody like me who's fortunate enough to do it in my normal daily life? Yeah, I don't want to just talk about cities, but I think that we should for a little bit because it is, as you said, it's unrealistic for every single person physically, socially, economically to get out into what we call quote unquote nature, even though as you know, as we know, nature is absolutely everything that's around us at any point in time. I say this as a as a big plane just flies by, as you can hear, I'm close to an airport. So that's always a good reminder that... I can't hear it. You can't hear it? Okay, well, there's a massive plane flying overhead. There was a, a piece of work that you did that I thought was fascinating on design for multi-species cities. And you say, and you write up on that, that there is often more biodiversity in cities than we expect. Maybe you can speak a little bit to that. What is designing for multi-species cities and not just for the human story? Because I'm sure that that's a way that we can bring that connection to larger numbers of people. Yeah. I spent a long time being told by various people that 
we should stop thinking of nature as something which exists some distant place in a natural park with green things growing in it, that nature is everywhere. Of course, we know that. But then I started to discover people who are actually rather seriously, not just studying the different life forms that exist in cities, but contemplating how one could amplify their presence and vitality particularly at the microbial level. There's been the last period a lot of interest in growing trees and expanding parks and things of a rather traditional nature which are, have all sorts of issues associated with them. It's probably on balance not a bad thing. But then it turns out that the basic nature of the city in its built form has so much been influenced by notions of hygiene and separating us from nature by design. That's what I'm mentioned about the 19th century, people will go to tremendous lengths to make the city clean and sort of hard surfaces and separated from all forms of pollution and unpleasant antibodies to such an extent that we've now created cities which are at one level biologically kind of sterile, but at the same time are filled with toxins and pollution from industrial processes. So it's a bad combination. And okay, so it's an interesting fact. The scientists and the ecologists will tell you that in cities, there's more biodiversity when you look particularly in small details and particularly at the microbial level, and that these can be considered as conditions for healthy living if one makes it a design task to achieve that. So I thought, well, that sounds good, because I said I'm trying to avoid just giving people lectures about what should be. So I did a workshop recently with some 26 designers in Italy, Milan Polytechnic, supposing that more biodiversity is good for health as a starting point, and in particular, microbial diversity. What actions could you as designers take to make that possible? And I was expecting this to be a hard slog, to be honest with you, Alexa. I was, it was a, invited to challenge them, but it was amazing. It was just pushing at an open door. And these were like not ecological designers. These were product designers with a technology background and inclination. But they just went off and did this most amazing group of quick projects on everything from how could one listen to the condition of a tree in a city non-invasively? How could you experience the sounds of a tree? Uh, which is a fantastic question. But because these were designers, they went off, found all sorts of technology to sample the sounds of, of a tree, found ways to turn those sounds into things you could hear on your phone, found ways to turn the sounds into musical information so that it might have a musical quality, found ways to turn those sounds of trees into playlists. So within a very short period of time, they'd concocted, this is one group, a way to connect with trees through sound. Another group hacked a smartphone and turned it into a kind of microscope by attaching microscopes physically to this phone. Then they would go and take samples of bits of dirt or gunge in the city, use that information, find AI programs to analyze what the pictures were telling them about microbial life in this little tiny bit of water. And then the AI would give them information about the different forms of bacteria that were present and what this meant. And they then made that kind of information to a kind of Pokemon Go card game so that you could collect bacteria in your phone that you had sampled physically with your little testing kit things like that. And it was just wonderful. And I had expected none of this, to be honest, how quickly they just got the idea of connecting with life, not with some exotic 
purpose in mind, but just for itself. And I just think it confirmed my general view that people are waiting for it and looking for it and don't need to be encouraged. So we had this fantastic period of people finding magical ways to connect with invisible life using modern tools and not with a big heavy agenda about fixing the city or making it healthy, but just as a form of exploration for its own sake. It sounds like what you're describing is there's the role for the designer in this kind of ecological literacy process or in understanding the invisible and visible life that's around us. The designer is almost like a translator so they can detect, okay, there's life here, um, fungal, bacterial, trees, plants, etc. And then how do we design a system or a mechanism by which normal people can interface in their own bodies and with their own senses, come into contact with that form of life? So I'm curious, how do we get people to engage the world with their senses and with their bodies? And what's the role of design in that? I know that you have, in your rich career, taken people on walks to interesting and, and microbially rich places. And it always, when I've read about those, have been reminded about you can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. I've come to the conclusion that the task of design is not to get people to do things at all. I mean, we, we try, obviously, but to make it put people into the situation where various opportunities open up and give them tools, but not like exotic fancy tools, but things like these guys last month with their hacked iPhone could just uncover a whole world of microbial life in the city of Milan in a few days, which I don't think they thought very deeply about it before. So I think designers have to put their trust in the fact that there's a lot of latent interest and eagerness to connect with things. And we just need a combination of some simple tools and permission. And very much it's about time and space to do these things because Everybody from you know young children to students to professionals, everybody's so pressured for time that that's one of the, to me, one of the dilemmas. I don't know easily what the answer is. How do you get people to create the time for themselves, even if we take them to a place and give them tools and give them some readings and inspire them, they still need the time in their lives to make it happen. But I think that people are ready for it. So it's, we don't have to push so hard. How have you changed through this process of working with designers and lecturing and hosting these workshops and coming to the realization that, okay, we need human beings to have a much more first person embodied relationship with the living world and with the understanding that that living world is all around them at any point in time. And therefore we can design for all forms of life. How have you changed through that process and your own relationship to nature and what you think nature is, and maybe even some of your own practices around connection? I would like to say that I've been, you know, incredibly sensitive and very wise, but I think it's been a matter of me observing my failure to get people to change their behavior just by telling them to change. So my first 20 years learning about something called the environmental movement and being told that something called sustainability is important my default reaction as a writer and a communicator was to write a lot about it and communicate. It's not just me, but I think we've learned rather too slowly, frankly, that telling people things is not the same thing as them getting it or understanding it. I think I've been genuinely looking for ways to change what I do so that more people than a small minority of very passionate ecologists would start to have this experience. It's a combination of letting go of my unrealistic expectations about what writing can do and at the same time, 
just as you said earlier, I did actually do an increasing number of journeys and workshops and smaller and smaller events in real places that were transformational for me and the people that were there. And I had to let go of the notion that only mass solutions are important. So only if you have a million people reading your book or only if you have a 100,000 people on a, an event, is it serious? Because if it's lots of small things, you know, small groups having small experiences, that doesn't correspond to the scale of the problem. And then I just gained confidence from just my awareness of how many millions of people are doing small things every day in lots of different ways. And we should absolutely respect and gain confidence and optimism from the fact that we are not alone in these things that we're doing. That, you know, very, very large numbers of people are, are taking action, not necessarily in the name of sustainability, but caring actions, caring for each other, caring for their places. I mean, I'll give you an example. The whole phenomenon of weed watching during the pandemic. I haven't heard of that. It's quite extraordinary <laughs> how many people have gained comfort from just being locked in their apartment. And this is a good example of where it's not just about going to a national park and hiking through some wilderness. Somebody stuck in an urban tower block during the lockdown would discover there was a weed growing on their balcony on the 10th floor which they'd never even noticed before, or they might have just idly thrown it away. And then there's, there's dozens of blogs and websites about weed watching. And that is a classic example of reconnecting with nature, not through some act of brilliance or being very wise, but just because somebody told you you had to stay in your flat for several weeks. And then you sit there and then you notice this weed. It's quite magical, I must say. Some of them are like ecologists or scientists, but most people not. Down the street from where I live, and now I live in a small town in France, but a woman runs a small shop, and I noticed some writing on her doorstep of her shop, and there's a little plant growing out of the lintel, and it's, it says in French, let me grow, and she's written let me grow in white marker pen, just on the side of the thing to stop people cleaning up her doorstep. She's not a kind of radical ecologist, she's a running a shop in a small town, but she is clearly... But as now do many people say, well, maybe we should welcome these weeds back into the cities and towns rather than regard them as a signal of disorder or untidiness. And those little tiny examples are what actually give me the most joy on a day-to-day -day basis. I can absolutely see why. I think that actually leads to a conversation on a placefulness or a place being our entry into caring about something. And a lot of the climate, ecological, biodiversity challenges that we're facing globally can seem abstract and far away and like people cannot even latch onto them or operate in them. And so let's talk a little bit about the importance of place, right? The placefulness of your balcony or of your store in your town. And why is it that when we know our place better, we are more able to, I think, care about it and discern what we can do? And as a following question from that, how do people start to get to know their place? You know, for people who are listening, where, where do they begin? Is it meeting their local farmer? Or, I mean, how do we create an environment whereby the places that people live in can be that entryway into a deeper ecological relationship? I've sort of come to the conclusion that most of us are connected to place anyway, but don't necessarily realize it or that society doesn't recognize or acknowledge the fact that we belong to places and 
uh, have a relationship with places which is more than just a practical one. So people throughout history have written about place. Obviously, my favorite, I think, is Simone Weil, who's the famous French writer and philosopher who said place is a doorway into caring. And if you just look up on Google, you can find hundreds, thousands of statements about place being important. So I don't think one has to demonstrate that it is important. I think the second part of your question is the more interesting one. How can one enrich one's relationship with place on a day-to-day -day basis if one has a normal life with lots of distractions and other pressures? So the weed watching was one. But other examples which are cropping up in many different locations, there are very practical techniques to be in a place in a mindful way, which some of which I've been taught a bit, ranging from just sitting still next to your favorite tree or stone and trying to just be with the stone for a while. I must say that is rather powerful. I saw a project recently near where I'm in France and where a group of architecture students were asked by their professor to spend several weeks learning about the soil of this region and all the different aspects of the soil, the rhizosphere, as it's called by scientists, and the, they were given a very practical task. If they think of ways to help the rhizosphere of this region be healthier and prosper, looking at its history, looking at the geology, looking at the chemistry, looking at the, what's there now in terms of plants, looking at the history of the agriculture. And in other words, they were given this pretty open brief about learning about the soil of this place as a design exercise. And then what was very fascinating was that they were only allowed to draw the results, tell the story of what they were proposing by drawing with a black pen on white paper. No photographs, no videos, no animations, no visualizations. It was quite enchanting, but not so easy to empathize with at the beginning. But the report, it was called Regenerative Empathy. And you can look it up. It's around on the internet. This report contained 100 proposals by people with predisposed to be architects but doing amazing studies about why, what is the life cycle of the eel living on the sea floor of the Mediterranean, or how can we make the life of the eel better? Um, or how can we find better ways to use the byproducts of the rice harvest, other than just burning all this stuff? Can't we use the rice husks and the straw in a more productive way than just burning it? Somebody looked at the tradition of growing olive trees around the region, which has all been there for hundreds of years, and said, why can't we combine growing olives with other sorts of planting so that we could have animals like pigs roaming around amongst the trees and fertilizing the ground, and then you get pigs as well as fruit from the harvest? This is basically people who knew more or less nothing about soil and place and all these questions until they were directed to find out what you can in this limited period of time about all these different aspects and then come up with some proposals. And that was just to me a rev another revelation is that just give people a pencil and a paper and some time and then send them off to find things out. And it's just amazing what can happen. When we're speaking with designers or technologists or those who practice sustainability in, inside of corporations or whatever it may be, that first person embodied relationship that we were speaking about earlier seems essential because you can't possibly design a policy or a, a financial mechanism or an intervention for something that you personally are so distanced from. And that's something that causes me a little bit of concern are 
people who are defining and, and, and kind of sculpting our worlds, but have only a very close first person relationship with the human, maybe more urban side of that. So how do we start to bridge that divide and, and give people a more holistic sense of what they're designing for and for whom? Huh. <laughs> I, mean, I think this is a pretty crucial question. So, and it's not just designers, it's basically the people who run the modern world are, as a sort of group of millions of people, just do not have very frequent embodied connections with living things, or maybe they do, but they don't necessarily notice. I'll give you an example. I just read this recent, this week about one of the top global consulting companies has started a master's degree in sustainability for its 320,000 employees. And they've done this because 75% of their people of this gigantic global consulting firm have expressed a very clear wish to do work that contributes to social and ecological issues and uh, isn't just about whatever other issues their work is filled with. And so I'm guessing that this, this course that they're being offered that's new is in part a response to keep people in the company and attract people to come and work for them who have this need but don't otherwise find it in their day-to-day -day life as a consultant. But I have to say, when you read the agenda of this course and when you look at the kind of program of this sustainability masters for 300,000 consultants, there's nothing in it at all about embodied experience. It's all about the ideas and the words and the, the apparatus of sustainability as something which big companies feel they have to do it. They don't know how to do it, so they hire a consulting company to help them do it. But it's all basically a recycling of very just of words and the search for metrics and the search for definitions and the search for evidence that they're doing something about it. But the it doesn't become real, not for me. I mean, of course, I'm not working there, but I strongly suspect they're not going to make them happier employees or feeling more satisfied as a result of doing this course. But it does raise the fundamental question of if you have 70% of the population of the world living in cities, let alone the ones living in corporate worlds, under what circumstances would they have these lived experiences that would begin to get them to make different decisions and take different actions? And I've had this conversation. Some people say, you're just talking about a few hippies or a few rich whole food customers or a few people who go on eco vacations to Costa Rica. And, and that's true. But if you frame it as we must have a very expensive experience called connecting to nature, then we're going to remain stuck. We have to be a bit more clever and artful about suggesting, for example, to a, somebody working in a skyscraper in London for a big consulting firm, we have to be clever about giving them little ways out to be connecting with nature and have lived experiences that isn't a full frontal command and control thing. But I don't know, we just have to crack the carapace that they're stuck in somehow. Crack the carapace. I like that. How would you design that course? How would you take on that challenge? What would you have them do? Well, this is a good question, because as you know, I thought oh, we need a course that people can go on. And lots of well, not, not. some people are now offering courses called Understand Systems, Understand Natural living systems and so on. And I've been involved in a few myself. I do a course in Sweden every summer called Back to the Land. And I have to say that although me and my fellow teachers have spent a lot of time thinking about what the program of this course should be, the actual experience that is valuable to people is leaving the city and going and staying in a small village in the middle of Sweden for a week. That is the value of the experience. 
Now, one of my colleagues is a very expert facilitator. Another one is a very expert teacher of design in terms of physicality and how things work. So you have the presence in that particular group of people who are have expert knowledge and skills, but if we weren't all physically there, I don't think it would be such a valuable experience. And so then the question is, how did we all come to be there? And this is where, you know, I must say I've become a bit more optimistic because we didn't do heavy marketing or have to drag people there. We said, here, we'll be in this small hamlet for a week. Come and join us. You don't have to pay in this case, Sweden being a rich, happy country like that. Then, yeah, people just come. They're very keen to come. So it's creating opportunities, creating spaces. So people in the world of facilitation called holding space. So I think there's a design activity called creating the conditions for people to meet with each other in a good situation. And I think that is not, frankly, so easy all the time. But if we create the spaces and the opportunities, I think people will come. It's not about a course in terms of here is the sort of five chapters that you have to learn and become expert in. It's about creating circumstances and situations in which people can then meet and make their own sense. So in the example of that, you know, consultancy with, you know, what could potentially be millions of people going through it, would you advocate for a a module whereby they all get together in some place and then engaged in place-based learning activities? And if so, what might some of those activities be? Maybe you could describe some of the things that would happen while they're all together. I actually would advocate for that, but it's not about just going and meeting in a forest and feeling green. I think that people should be given tasks to do, partly because it's otherwise very disorienting. You know, And these tasks should be productive tasks, beneficial to the place. So, for example, some friends of mine started the ecosystem restoration camp movement, it's now become where you could go for anything from a week to several weeks and just physically help somebody restore some land. And you can do this as a rank amateur or somebody with some special skills. But that has clearly answered a need because it's very growing tremendously fast. And there you have experts at the site. It could be a river or a forest or a farm or a community. It could even be an urban situation. And somebody who with proper knowledge of the place said, yeah, we're going to clear out this polluted soil from this building. And at the end of that, we will then grow some food in it or we will, whatever, we'll do some things in it. Very simple, practical, manual work. But in the process of doing that, you get to learn about the history of that little bit of land. Why is that building there? Why did the earth get poisoned? Is it possible to clean up the soil using plants or do you need to use other techniques? But the point is you have a real place and you go there for a week or more. And when you leave, that place is in a better shape. This is a guy called John Yu who uh, started this movement. And I just think it answers the question of don't just go and feel good. You want to do good. We all feel that. We ought to do good for a place. And if somebody can organize for that to happen, so much the better. I'll tell you an example. You go down freeways in America and you see This stretch is sponsored by, and then there's a small company like a hamburger bar or a legal office is in some way sponsored the maintenance of that bit of the freeway. And I think to speak of this big consulting company, why don't they sponsor, you know, or be associated or partner with ecosystem restoration sites around the world where they have people, and then their people can go and work on these sites and physically help to restore them learn about it at the same time. 
And I think that would be a very desirable thing for a big employer to offer, you know, physical opportunities to physically make land healthier in a place. Nothing complicated and not requiring very virtuous people, but just, you know, two days a month, a weekend a month. I don't know what it would be. If your personal contribution, as a result of which that bit of nature got healthier, yeah, I don't see how you could lose doing that. I think that's a brilliant idea. I hope that they listen to this. And I'm curious if you have examples, especially urban activities that are examples of these little hopeful sparks and what people could even be on the lookout for. Because I think it's very hard when you don't even know what to look for, how to find it. I think the finding of the spark is less difficult than finding ways for people to make that first connection. And there are lots of people much more expert and wise than me about enabling the people who never get heard, the, well, the people who are just physically, they have two, three jobs and young children and work in Amazon or something. You can't just say, here's a nice list of forest schools for your children to go to. I mean, that's great and it's wonderful, but that doesn't really answer the question for that particular parent. You know, poor people we're talking about, time poor and resource poor for whom a list of opportunities is not enough, frankly. And my practice for many years was to write, to go and look for stories of positive activities and look for um, people doing inspiring things and say, look, there's lots of good things happening. And I still think that's great. But I then came to the realization that just putting lots of stories of people doing great stuff somewhere else is not of itself enough for many people. So it's therefore the service innovation and the organization of other aspects of infrastructure, you could call it, that makes it possible for everybody else to have that refreshing and nurturing experience. But if you have to have time and money to have it, it remains a minority thing. Well, I'll give you an example. You asked me, for example, there's people called the Sugi Project that around the world help local communities plant diverse microforests, often in very unpromising wrong side of the tracks type locations inspired by a wonderful Japanese guy called Miyawaki, discovered that actually it's not so hard to plant a forest, but you just need a bit of expertise, some land, you need a conversation with the local municipality. Actually, you need lots of things. There's an organizational task, but if some of those organizational tasks could be taken care of, it is simply not hard to get local people of all walks of life, so to speak, to come and take part. And then you get the most fantastic richness when people from different cultures in a city come along and start discussing what could be in their microforest, you know, an edible microforest. So that's a good example. All the 10 million aspects of urban food is another example of where, when I started out writing about urban farming and urban food, it was, yeah, frankly, again, it was a sort of rich person's hobby. You know, if you kind of had the time to spend, it was kind of cool in the northern, you know, in Europe, where I am, and then in the whole of the global south, as I discovered, best 900 million people grow food because they need to and because they always have done. And there was these two worlds with very little knowledge of each other. But that's all changed in the last five years as well, so that so many cities are now making space for people from all walks of life to grow food, not just because it grows calories, but because they recognize how much positive benefit there is to communities growing food, mixing with each other, sharing knowledge, sharing tools, sharing land, whatever. And so all sorts of 
cities that thought the whole thing was an irritating, rich hipster sort of fad, it's now becoming mainstream really rather quickly. And that's where you don't have to give people lectures about biodiversity or life. You just say, yeah, do you want to be part of growing food? Yes, I can, but there's all these practical obstacles. That's when the city comes and city fathers, city municipal authorities make things possible now that they previously would have thought were a hassle. I'm sure that the pandemic also accelerated that. And I think there's a lot of figures on there to see the increase in urban farming and people growing their own little plots of food. I'm curious about the other divide, not just the one that you mentioned between people who are in the global south growing their own food and people in other cities who aren't used to it. But you've done a lot of work in China in bridging the urban-rural divides and how those areas are disconnected. Maybe you could speak a little bit to those series of projects and how you try to bridge those worlds. Uh, I had the great good fortune to be asked to go to Tonji University in Shanghai and look at the question of urban-rural reconnection which I'd written about a bit, also bioregions and those sorts of subjects, which, like many other of these words, they sound nice, but it's not clear what they mean in practice. So I went to China with a rather specific brief to collect examples of new forms of urban-rural reconnection that were either emerging from the passage of time in a vast and very complex country or were initiatives from innovative companies and individuals. And so at the end of 2019, just before the pandemic, I did indeed do a big show called Urban Rural, where we had about 100 of these projects came together. And it was just yet another happy-making experience is that once you go and look, lo and behold, there's so many amazing things going on, which are kind of below the radar or have a different name attached to them, that people in Europe and in the United States have been talking about as would be nice for a long time. So it, a lot of it comes back to food. For example, how can we make it possible for f small farmers or farmers generally to talk directly to the people that eat their food rather than going through all these layers of supermarkets and industrial food processing and packaging, etc.? And I've been advocating for that for years. And then I go to China and lo and behold, basically the kind of Alibabas of this world have proactively, in their case, done what they call farmer live streaming, which they enable a small farmer with a phone and about a few days of training to communicate directly to the people in the big city who buy their food, whether it's mangoes or uh, rice or whatever. And it's a combination of a kind of experiment by the technology company or the distribution company with an unmet need. It just exploded. So 300,000 farmers are now talking on a regular basis with the people in their city. There's a guy who's quite become a celebrity who basically looks after hens and has eggs and hens. And he's become a celebrity for the entertaining way that he describes the day on the life of his hen farm. And there's funny mango farmers and tea. So there's the serious foodie side of it where they go into, frankly, exotic detail about the nuances of a little tea leaf, but most of it's about daily life on the farms and how interesting it is to city people. And the reason that's happening in China, that it's not really still happening in Europe so much, is that it's a more of a mass thing that farms and food are genuinely a priority for the Chinese authorities because it's, you know there's 300 million small farmers of one kind or another in China. They're a big chunk of the population, and it's not about just being you know, enlightened, but they are a big political force. So the government has to look after the interests of the rural economies. 
and therefore it does. And then they have, I'm not wishing to say it's, you know, marvelous, but that whole communication gap that we complain about, you know, in the West between the land and the city, it's, yeah, it's breaking down a lot. And the consequences are that the guys with the mangoes who start by telling stories into their phone about their mango crop then become experts who can have visitors go to the farm. You start to multiply the different forms of economic activity, you know, food tours, cooking visits, ecological visits. And so the things that people like myself would write to-do lists on are already happening because some telco said, let's do live streaming. So that's why I think it's not about sitting in a studio dreaming up exotic ideas. It's about being explorers. And if you get out of the house, so to speak, or out of your studio and into the world, there are so many amazing things happening that are admirable that could be done better with, for example, the attention of a designer or all sorts of other forms of knowledge that we have. I think what's so interesting and compelling about that example is, you know, going back to what you were sharing earlier about how the internet and technology in its earlier stages was asking, well, how can we be in service to this movement without the Alibabas and without that connectivity, those superstar mango farmers? And I know uh, an abuela in a Mexican village that has like, I don't know how many millions of followers. And every day she's just cooking her mole, kind of like this slow TV without the role of technologists and designers in creating those systems that can bridge those divides, that may not have ever happened. And so I think it is a really compelling invitation for those who work in those spaces to say, okay, how can your knowledge and your skills be used to bring these worlds closer together? And I just think it's an absolutely wonderful invitation. Something that I ask a lot on this podcast, and as you know, the title Life Worlds is about this notion and the way that I'm interpreting it, that all of the species and organisms that we share the planet with have their own world that they live inside of, their own experience of the planet. And as human beings, we could try often a lot better to put ourselves in their shoes and understand, okay, can we design for you? Can we understand you better in order to live in greater harmony and coherence for everyone? I think that that kind of approach can never be amiss. Is that something that in your own practice you've attempted to do or experimented with to look at another organism or form of life and develop some kind of relationship where it's either taught you something or you've thought, okay, we're going to design for something that is more than human? I've been fascinated by, for example, slime molds for the mycorrhizal networks of trees, mainly because beautiful communicators from the words of science and ecology have drawn my attention to it. But I have to say, I can't really claim to have come up with some very brilliant design action as a result of it, except what I was saying earlier, that so much of what we can do to help living systems flourish is to kind of not do very much. You know, let's stand back and watch. And I think that this notion of standing back and observing how nature operates is surprisingly instructive because nature operates on an infinity of very interesting and cool ways but many of them are conjunctural nature operates on what needs to be done now to live or to reproduce and you know a slime mold is a good example of something which doesn't have strategies and blueprints and design educations but is tremendously effective at finding food and occupying a new context that might be beneficial for itself uh, without having a brain or a design mind or anything or design thinking. But I think the trick is to just be inspired and learn how incredibly 
a resourceful nature is without feeling some kind of compulsion to turn that into a design action. Frankly, my difficulty was what happened to the biomimicry movement. It's this basic human need to make things is very powerful. And I think the need to make things is not necessarily always consistent with leaving an ecosystem healthier. So if you go in and say, look at all this bamboo, we can make so many things with bamboo. And people have duly made lots of things with bamboo. But I just think we're in a transition phase from learning about the diversity and the richness of natural processes and natural ecosystems to realizing that we humans can actually be more like nature and adapt to our context in a more short-term way rather than turning natural knowledge into product lines. So I don't know if you know about the bioeconomy, for example, is basically at the moment designers and technologists and scientists saying, look at this amazing mushroom. And this is a true story from my friends in Tellier Luma. We could replace all the sound insulation in Mercedes cars with mycelial growth, and therefore we'd have bio cars. And my attitude to that is, well, no, we wouldn't, because maybe we don't need cars in the first place. We're in, I think, a transition called bioeconomy is reproducing industrial processes that consume, I don't know, steel and energy and iron foundries and coal to processes which are driven by natural things or more natural things, but it's still within an industrial mindset, you know, production, efficiency, cost, reproducibility. So it's a kind of transition which I think we need to speed up a bit towards not every place needs to be built on or we don't need to build things and make things to meet all our needs. We can meet our needs in other ways than making things. That's such a critical point. And I think often we would consume or build less if we were more satisfied in other aspects of our lives. And that's where a lot of what we talked about today is also where those needs get filled, the connection with others, the being in the land, the participating in meaningful activities. And it doesn't have to just be getting the greenest car that's out there on the market, because undeniably, that's still necessarily not a very green activity. But this is a great point, and you put it beautifully. Learning to live with less actually can be a design-intense activity. Uh, but it doesn't lead to the production of goods or, for that matter, paid for services. So that what is real for life that we're going to have in the future is not the same as the real for the economy that we have at the moment, which requires you know, products and services that can be exchanged for money. So that's another one of the transitions we're in, is away from, indeed, meeting our needs through things that we pay for. But that is an inconvenient transition if you're running a big company. I accept that. But how we get them out of that, I don't know. But they have to move on. That's an excellent point. Thank you so much for this wealth of knowledge that you share and also for your time. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation. It's been absolutely wonderful, Alexa. Thank you for inviting me and I look forward to hearing the future episodes. John's website is linked in the show notes and is a treasure chest of resources on everything you can imagine relating to design and ecology and education. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and stay tuned for a fresh episode coming out in two weeks' time. It will be our final episode of this series. I cannot believe it's gone by so fast. And we will hone in on wilderness rights and tracking, how nature can be a mentor. So that's it for me today. I would love to hear from you, so do reach out on the lifeworld.earth website where you can also find all of the show notes and an open source library ranging on everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to the email list 
and I will see you back here soon.